0: Released in 1970, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist was adapted from a novel by Alberto Moravia. It centres on Marcello Clerici, a very troubled aristocrat who, living in 1930s Italy, feels very isolated and confused as to his identity. One cause for this is his sexuality. Hoping to clear up his doubts, Clerici, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant, decides to join Mussolini's fascist party. Thinking this conformity has made a man of him, Clerici then proposes to the naïve and haute-bourgeois Julia, played by Stefania Sandrelli. It is then that Mussolini's secret police come calling, assigning Clerici on a mission to Paris, where he is to assassinate an anti-fascist expatriate, Luca Quadri. Quadri, played by Enzo Tarasio, just happens to be Clerici's former college professor. Subtitles are no use in a podcast, so instead, I have opted for a version of the dialogue dubbed into English. What did the colonel say? There's a small change in the program on your way to Paris before you cross the frontier. You must stop at Ventimiglia via De Glicini, number three. Number three via De Glicini. You'll meet a trusted person called Raoul. He'll give you further instructions. How long have you been in the ranks? I began in 1923. Turkey, France, Greece. Always into the breach, huh? I'm on the move, sir. All for family and my country. Your country before the family. In the hands of another director, say Costa Gravers, who in the same year directed the Oscar-winning Z, this could have been a fast-paced political thriller. But instead, what Bertolucci gives us is a character study. A study of a character with whom it is not easy to identify. Nonetheless, the film was a very personal work for Bertolucci. He not only directed, but also wrote the script. Just how personal it was, we shall see in a moment. But for now, let us understand that Bertolucci could never be mistaken for a fascist or a conformist. Bertolucci's approach in adapting the novel was not political, but rather psychological. In particular, he tackled the book by way of Sigmund Freud's interpretation of Sophocles' myth, Oedipus Rex. Not the bit about a young man having sex with his mother, but rather the part where he murders his father. When The Conformist premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in June 1970, Bertolucci had just turned 30, which means he was born in 1940. And for many people born in that time, as adults, they felt the need to distance themselves from the disasters wrought by the previous generation. The most obvious example of the film's edible themes is politics. Did you ever ask yourself, Cleodice, Why people want to collaborate with us? Some do it out of fear. Most of them for the money. Faith in fascism, very few. As for you no. I feel that you're not governed by any of these reasons. And when may I expect a reply? I hope very soon. If I put aside the idealist revolutionary, I must ask myself what your aim is. In 1922, fascism took hold of Italy and Mussolini's black shirts had the country by the throat until 1943 when, in the middle of the war, a coup d'etat finally deposed the despot. But in the wake of Italy's defeat, there came an ideological crisis. What do you place fascism with? Religion? You are forgetting that I happen to be the priest and you are the sinner. Now, after that once did you have sexual relations with other men? All the rest were normal. Which means what? A brothel when I was 18. Since then, relationships only with women. And this, according to you, is a sexual life? that is normal. But why? But you, my son, have always lived in sin. There is a third Oedipal layer, and that is cinematic. Bertolucci's father, Attilo, was a revered poet, and indeed, when he was a teenager, it was assumed Bernardo would also take up the pen. But then, and through his father, he met another poet who was just about to make his first feature film. Pier Paolo Pasolini was a radical amongst radicals. Openly gay when it was still punishable, Pasolini was also a communist who was interested in championing the sub-proletariat. While Bertolucci's political views never went that far, he did follow Pasolini into film, serving as assistant director on Pasolini's first feature, Acatone. And then, when Bertolucci turned just 22, he made his own debut with The Grim Reaper. Pasolini's style and subject were akin to that of the neorealists, Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica and Luchino Visconti, whose films, Rome Open City, Bicycle Thieves and La Terra Trema, influenced filmmakers across the globe. Neorealism was in itself an Oedipal movement, overthrowing the cinema of the fascist era. However profoundly impactful it had been globally, by the 1960s, the movement had all but petered out in Italian cinema, with directors such as Michelangelo Antonioni, Federico Fellini and Francesco Rossi using different techniques to explore different themes. And although Pasolini had used Neorealist techniques for his first film, Bertolucci did not follow his mentor. Instead, he favored the films of French director Jean-Luc Godard. The one-time film critic turned full-time advocate of politically engaged cinema, Godard had erupted onto the scene in 1960 with Abu D'Souffle, a film that literally left Bertolucci breathless. Here he is on BBC in 1988, introducing Godard's first film. It all began almost 30 years ago with Abu D'Souffle. Abu De Souffle was our manifesto. We believed quite simply that cinema was divided into pre-Godard and post-Godard. Godard, reconceiving film syntax, was telling us that there were other ways to tell a story, that one can, one must, deal with characters not through psychology, but through their behaviour, their fears, their desires. On the screen in front of me, as if it was a blackboard, Godard was changing all the rules. His language was outrageous, fast, light, as though he was shooting a new shot and throwing away the one before. Bertolucci was so taken by Godard that for his next two pictures, before the revolution and partner, he adopted, if not aped, many of the topics and tropes his new idol had unleashed. Marx's critiques of European imperialism and Brechtian self-reflexivity. That may have been intellectually stimulating and cinematically invigorating, but in terms of creativity, Bertolucci's adoration of Godard was so great, it was stifling his own artistic development. Which is why when Bertolucci read Moravia's novel about a young man who travels from Rome to Paris to assassinate his former mentor. Suddenly, the film was not just historical, political or allegorical. It was personal. It was cinematic patricide, with Bertolucci killing off Godard. I want Medici 3806. Length 11 and wait. I'll wait. Hello. Uh, This is Clarecci. I was a student of yours back in Rome, and I'd like to see you again. Of course, Professor. I came about my graduate thesis. It was the year that you stopped uh, teaching, Professor. I don't remember your name. It was so long ago. Clarecci, you said? Yes, and uh, you said to me, I remember that day so well, everything. You said, the time for reflection is over for me. Now begins the time for action. Medici 3806 was Godard's personal telephone number to his Paris apartment. And the quotation Claudici gives is a direct inversion of the opening line from Godard's second feature film, Le Petit Soldat, which runs, The time for action has passed, the time for reflection has come. Another note on the Oedipal theme, in 1963, Godard had made his own film from another novel by Moravia, Le Mépris, which was about a filmmaker trying to make a film about another Greek myth, the Odyssey. And here is one more link between the two films. The music you're listening to is from the soundtrack to Le Puis, composed by Georges Delarue, and Delarue composed the music for The Conformist. The Conformist's greatest virtue is the way it looks. Take its production design by Ferdinando Scarfiati. Scarfiotti takes the fascist architecture of Mussolini's Rome and weighs it against the neoclassical structures of Haussmann's Paris. And while Paris is the setting for the assassination, it is that city that is bathed in romantic blues and golds. It appears like a dream. But Rome looks like a nightmare in black and white, hollowed out by vast, cavernous and overwhelming fascist architecture. Streets are empty, mansions crumble and gardens grow unkempt. The only things that are cared for are the clothes, and Geek Magrini's costumes, no matter whether we are in Rome or Paris, all carry the air of Art Deco. Then you have the way the film is edited together by Franco Arcali. Arcali had worked uncredited with Bertolucci on the script, and while not writing the dialogue, he did suggest an ingenious and intricate narrative structure that had flashbacks within flashbacks. On Arcali's encouragement, Bertolucci shot certain scenes in such a way They could only be edited in an elliptical manner. Prior to the Conformist, Bertolucci had preferred long takes with minimal editing, but it was Arcali who persuaded him to adopt a different technique, and that resulted in a fractured structure that perfectly reflects Cletici's unstable mind. And then there is the sumptuous, sinuous, and seductive cinematography of Vittorio Storaro. Here is a three-time Oscar winner speaking of the necessity to think of cinema as an art. What is our chance to really control the meaning of the visual art? Knowing the meaning of light, knowing the meaning of every single element through his symbology, through his physiology, through his uh, dramaturgy, the different colour can give it to us. So this is a kind of visual language. So you have to, like a writer is using words to transfer emotion, like a musician using notes, we're using uh, the the knowledge of of light, shadows and colours. With Quadri's assassination complete, we return to Rome where we see shadow has fallen across the city. This nightmare vision is the culmination of the film's central themes. Light and dark sight and blindness, knowledge and ignorance, good and evil. And that finally brings me to the other Greek figure in the story. When Clerici went to meet Professor Quadri in Paris, he recalled a lecture Quadri had once delivered about Plato's cave, in which he detailed the Greek philosopher's theory on what we perceive to be reality. It isn't reality at all, Plato said. It is nothing more than a shadow cast on the wall of a cave. And society sits in the cave, submissively, watching the shadows conforming to the illusions. And where does Claudici end up? Not in a literal cave, but in something similar, looking back into the dark and finally ready to admit to his real identity. There are generations of american filmmakers who have drawn on bertolucci's film not least francis ford coppola for the godfather part two he not only borrowed heavily on the conformists look and structure he also approached storaro to come aboard a cinematographer but storaro declined stating he would not be able to deliver the textures gordon willis had delivered in the original then there is martin scorsese who used the Conformist's subjective point of view to inform the psychosis of Taxi Driver's Travis Bickle. Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, not only used the Conformist's entire schema for his own film, American Gigolo. He achieved that look by engaging Ferdinando Scarfiotti to serve as the film's visual consultant. When, in 1980, Lawrence Kasdan did his neo-noir thriller, Body Heat, he also referenced Bertolucci's masterpiece. While the Cohen brothers adopted the lighting style for their debut feature, Blood Simple. The brothers cited the film again when they made Miller's Crossing, only on that occasion it was not a visual motif they drew from, but rather the sound design that plays through the Quadri assassination. Just listen to the sequence in their gangster picture where Tom Regan is brought back out to the woods to locate the corpse of a man he is supposed to have killed. David Chase is another who was inspired by the same assassination scene drawing openly on it for the Season 5 episode of The Sopranos when Silvio murders Adriana out in the woods. The Conformist can also be seen in several Michael Mann films, most explicitly Manhunter and Heat. And more recently, you can find traces of it in Wes Anderson's masterful The Grand Budapest Hotel. Then there is The Tango, which Amy Heckerling humorously echoed in Clueless. Even Steven Spielberg has drawn from it, all you have to do is pay attention to the sequence in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the young boy, Barry Guyler, is spirited away by the alien ship. As his mother, Gillian, tries to close the windows, an extraterrestrial light hovers ominously down from above. That shifting light source can be traced to the moment in The Conformist when Clerici goes to visit Julia in her mother's apartment. I sometimes wonder how that scene read on the page, because what happens on screen is that as Julia takes her seat on the lounger, the source light swoons down from on high, sending cascades of shadows through the Venetian blinds to caress her body. Like so many other moments in the film, the technique is outrageously self-conscious, but works because it is so captivating. Of course, what makes it work is that the slant of the shadows visually echo the black and white diagonal stripes. You can just imagine the moment Storaro saw Sandrelli in her costume for the first time, and whispered to Bertolucci, Hang on, I've got an idea. The Conformist is full of such ideas, delighting in the full range of expression the cinema allows. With each of the filmmakers, director, cinematographer, editor, costume, production and sound designer, all collaborating to realise the film's content and style. Clearly a great influence on generations of filmmakers, The Conformist is undoubtedly a landmark in the history of cinema. If you have not already seen it, it is available on Blu-ray, and watching it, I am sure you will find many more layers than the few I have already discussed. For me, The Conformist ranks alongside the likes of Battleship Atemkin, Metropolis, Citizen Kane and Rashomon.